Welcome to Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at Prio. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Today, we're going to hear from Jürgen Jensehagen, a senior researcher at Prio. In 2018, he published the book Arab-Israeli Diplomacy Under Carter, the US, Israel, and the Palestinians. He'll be talking to us about Israel's annexation of the West Bank and the historical background for it. Well, it's hard to start completely contemporary without going a bit back. So the the discussion today is about formally annexing the West Bank or parts of the West Bank, which has been occupied since 1967. So it's it's basically a discussion about uh, sort of a, a judicial change of the status of those territories. So can you maybe just quickly define annexation, just to go completely back to basics right. for people who are listening? So... To understand what annexation is, we need to understand what occupation is. Occupation is basically a temporary measure. You take over territory militarily uh, and you hold it for an indefinite amount of time. But there's always this understanding that it is temporary. So whatever excuse one uses, whether it's for security reasons or whether ongoing conflict or or whatever, um, you call it occupation, which means that the territory is not considered your sovereign territory. When you annex a territory, you change that. You basically say this is not temporary anymore. It's supposed to last forever, basically. uh, And it becomes part of your state's sovereign territory. Now, of course, the international community is not going to recognize this, but it's it's an Israeli uh, declaration of a change of sovereignty. They haven't done it for the West Bank yet, uh, but they have done it previously for Jerusalem and they have done it for the Golan Heights. So it's it's not it's not like this is a unique thing, but what what's different with the discussion of annexation of the West Bank is that a formal annexation of the West Bank will basically mean that the two-state solution is formally dead. Uh, it's not just sort of a theoretical question: can it happen? And it's difficult log- logistically, etc. With annexation, that there is no uh, two-state solution because Israel uh, then basically says it is ours and we're going to keep it forever. And we're recording this on August 5th, but it was supposed to be July that things really started moving. Obviously, it seems like coronavirus might have made that a bit difficult, but people were kind of expecting this possible annexation to occur then. So what what exactly happened uh, or what is happening now? So there's nothing concrete that has happened. What what happened is that the government platform states uh, something along the lines that the process leading to annexation can start on 1st of July. Um, but nothing did happen. So the question is, is this something Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, really wants to do? Uh, is it something he's planning to do? Uh, and what is in his way and and this i think is the the last part here is the most uh interesting from from my perspective um and and to have a serious discussion on sort of what stands in israel's way we really have to look at sort of the motivations for israel to annex and uh, couple that with uh, the costs um because they're both significant right there are significant gains of, of annexing but they're mostly ideological gains. The costs, however, are very, very significant. Um, so it de- really depends on how heavy uh, an Israeli government uh, thinks of the benefits, because they know there will be costs. 
Okay, and so before we go all the way back to Carter and Began and and all the other players, um, this isn't something that we can talk about without talking about Trump, I think. Right. And I saw some kind of thoughts and rumors that maybe there's a motivation to get this done before the election, the U.S. election. Um, so I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? What do you what do you think of the U.S. Uh, aspect of this? Because it's hard to decouple the U.S. from Israel when we talk about these things. Uh, definitely. So Trump is, in very many respects, a very weird president. Uh, there is <laughs> no, no argument. Here. No argument there. <laughs> but when it comes to this question of of annexation or, or basically just Israel in general, Trump is both sort of an an uh, a complete break with the past U.S. policies, but he's also sort of the logical conclusion of, of past U.S. policies. So let me try to break these contradictions down. So when it comes to Jerusalem, for instance, uh, no U.S. president prior to Trump have recognized East Jerusalem as part of, of Israel, right? So this uh, Israeli understanding of what Jerusalem is has not been in agreement with the Americans. Suddenly Trump broke with that, but the U.S. has gradually sort of shifted towards de facto accepting Israeli control over Jerusalem. In the beginning, uh, the U.S. even refused to, to send their diplomats to Jerusalem at all for any meetings. Uh, and then gradually they started having meetings there, but the embassy was kept in Tel Aviv nonetheless. So, so Trump's moving of the embassy to Jerusalem is basically sort of a continuation of something that had gradually been happening, but he took such a giant step that it looked like a complete break. And I think we can say the same thing with, with the West Bank. Now, initially, it was sort of understood that Israel would have to give it back. And then the rhetoric developed that this was uh, occupied territory that would have to go back in, in, a, in a conclusion of a peace agreement. And then there was sort of a gradual move to understanding that the big settlement blocks could become part of, of sovereign Israeli territory. Um, and there was weakening on language on, on, on settlements and weakening on language on, on occupation. And then suddenly he basically says, you know, you can, you can keep all of the places where you have settlements on the West Bank. So it's sort of both this sort of drastic step, um, but it's a continuation of this gradual erosion of, of, of U.S. position on, on uh, what we can call the red lines, basically. Um, so when Trump launches his peace plan, it includes a statement or includes a, a central part of it, basically, is that Israel gets to keep not only the big settlement blocks, which had been previous U.S. position, but all settlements, even the, the smallest, minutest, uh, you know, tent set up on a hilltop kind of settlement. Um, so this would basically mean that, that you know, approaching 50% of the West Bank could be annexed by Israel. So this was sort of a, a green light given but, and there is a very important but here, Trump's peace plan basically says that this is part of a package whereby the Palestinians get a state. Now, the peace plan gives the Palestinians such a little state with such uh, huge restrictions that it's not a state at all, and the Palestinians are never going to accept it. But for the Israeli right-wingers, even this is too much. So if Trump is, or if Netanyahu is to accept Trump's plan, he's basically getting everything Israel has ever asked for, but for his right-wing coalition, even that is too much. 
So because, everyone will just be unhappy in this situation. Yes, right. So what Netanyahu sort of wants to do is to get all the gifts from the Trump plan, that is the annexation, Jerusalem, get the refugees off the table, everything that's good for Israel. But he does not want to, to uh, give in to this concept of a Palestinian state. So the whole idea of the government, the Israeli government, is to kind of move on annexation without taking uh, the price taking the, the Palestinian state. Um, but this is no easy thing because uh, there are a whole bunch of things that follow from annexation that are problematic. So one is Trump, where if if Netanyahu says, thanks for half your plan, I'm going to throw the rest in the, in the garbage bin, Trump might not be too happy about that. But more problematic, and here we get into sort of the existential debate about what Israel is and what Israel should be and what it can be, etc., is the concept that when you annex the territory and it becomes your sovereign territory, there are people living there that are not Israeli citizens. What do you do with them? So what do you do with the Palestinians and how do the Palestinians react? Right. So if you annex a territory where there are Palestinians, do you give them citizenship? If you do, it's no longer a Jewish state. If you don't give them citizenship, it's no longer a democratic state. Now, this has always been, or since 1967, this has been sort of the facts on the ground, but it has not been law, right? So annexation changes that. It makes it law. It, it means that there are Palestinians there that are denied citizenship, or that there are Palestinians there that get a citizenship, in which case you're no longer a Jewish state. Right. So this is sort of a really existential dilemma. And this is where we can go into the, 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 the begging uh, discussion. Yeah. And but before we do, because I just thought of one more question that I'm really burning to ask. What will happen if uh, Biden wins the election? Will will the, how will this affect the relationship between Israel and the U.S.? So this is difficult because this American election now is very different from normal U.S. elections. Biden is basically running a non-campaign in a bunker, right? He's, <laughs> he's winning the election s so far, right? Yeah. Uh, based on opinion polls, because he's not participating. He's basically allowing Trump to commit electoral suicide. This could change, right? Uh, there will be debates and, and there will be discussions. But as long as this is sort of the trajectory of the US elections, we don't really know too much about the dynamics of or the inner workings of the Biden campaign. So we don't know the details on, on how he's going to react to this and that. What we do sort of know is that, you know, the Trump plan is not completely up his alley, uh, but he, he's not, you know, a staunch left-wing supporter of the Palestinians, right? Um, and there is this history of the, the Democrats have supported Israel as much as the Republicans. This has changed over the last few years, uh, basically because Trump has gone, you know, real gung-ho on, on supporting Israel. Um, but there, but Biden's sort of concept, as far as I understand it, is to go back to the normal situation in the U.S., which is support Israel in thick and thin, but don't give them everything for free, um, which has been sort of the Trump line. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see then. But nobody even knows that there will be an election at this point. So <laughs> stay tuned. Um, yeah. OK, so let's talk about Begin and Carter and why this is not actually a new problem. Right. So the reason I, I like jumping back to Begin, even though that's, you know, you know 40, 50, uh, 45 years ago, is because Begin is the founding father of the Liquid Party. 
So he's basically the ideologue that Netanyahu stands on the shoulders of. And when Israel occupied the West Bank in 1967, the decision basically on, on the Israeli side was to decide not to decide. So you could say that there was like, you know, kind of caricaturing here, but there were three Israeli standpoints. One is sort of the dovish, we use this as a bargaining chip to get peace with our neighbors. So we plan to give everything back in return for peace, right? The mid, mid ground is sort of, okay, let's get some strategic areas on the West Bank. Um, some of the heights, some of the, the water aquifers, let's control some of the border areas. But in general, it's not so important to us, right? And then you have the Likud standpoint, which is this is sovereign Jewish territory. It has always been sovereign Jewish territory. It's just that, you know, for quite a long time, we didn't control it. But now we control it and we're going to control it forever. And this is a very ideological nationalist standpoint. And this is this is Begin's sort of uh, notion of, of, uh, of the larger Israel. So when, when Carter says in 1977 that the Palestinians need a homeland, it doesn't say state, but from sort of an Israeli perspective, there's this idea that once you've said homeland, the logical conclusion is state. So they get really, really worried about where the U.S. is taking uh, the discussion. And basically to preempt this development, Menachem Begin develops this, uh, this theory of making the territory uh, not a debate about sovereignty um, but a debate about sort of the rights of the people living on it so he, he takes sort of the the question of territory out um, and this becomes sort of this, uh, this very strange creation uh, I'm not going to go too deep in, into uh, sort of the ideological uh, let's see juggling he does to, to make this happen but his central point is if we claim sovereignty, they will fight us on it because they want it too. But we can act as if we have sovereignty. So if we continue building, we continue acting as, this is if, as if this is Israel, but we don't change the status of the land. So the land is still sort of debatable. You know, who knows who owns it, basically. In the meantime, we can move people in. Right? So the point being that, you know, Israel understands it as being sovereign, but they don't claim it because that creates problems. Um, and this relates to, to you know, the, the question of, of uh, citizenship, etc., etc. Um, so if we fast forward to Netanyahu, he's kind of taking that, but he's promised to annex. Right? And so he has that, that dilemma. Um, you know, you want the land, but you don't want the people on it. Uh, this in, in sort of Zionist uh, history is, is called the bride and the dowry dilemma. Uh, you want the bride, which is the land, but you don't want to pay the dowry, which is giving the Palestinian citizenship. Right? So you, you don't want the people living on it. You just want the territory. But that just doesn't quite work. Um, and this is Netanyahu's dilemma today, too. He wants the West Bank, but he doesn't want to relate to the Palestinians being part of the demos of, of Israel. Um, and therefore, they're trying to sort of package which areas they're going to annex. So it's the Jordan Valley, which is the border to Jordan. Uh, it's the big settlement blocks. It's some symbolic settlements, uh, you know. But so, so they're trying to annex areas where there are no Palestinians, right? So the most amount of sovereign Jewish land 
with the least amount of Palestinians. The problem being, once you've started annexing certain portions of the West Bank and there is very little left, the Palestinians will just say, there is not enough left for us now for a state. So this really throws everything up in the air. If all of this happens, are the Palestinians going to say, okay, fine, we demand citizenship then. We give up our two-state demand, we demand one state, and we demand equal rights. And then we have a completely different ballgame. And this is something Netanyahu knows, and this is something he doesn't want. But there are all these different contexts coming into play. Right? One of the contexts is that Netanyahu is under this massive trial for corruption and, uh, you know, it's three big trials. Um, and he might want to find a way out, a way out of, of this legal conundrum which he is in. And a possible way to get that is to, to make this whole political play where he gets his most right-wing supporters to basically support him full throttle for annexation. Uh, and in return, he could get Im immunity in the courts. This is one possible play. Um, another thing is, he, you know, he might realize that he's, he's doomed. He's going to prison for this. Uh, and at least he's going to leave one big legacy behind. And that is the enlargement of the Jewish state. That could be his sort of big uh, trophy. But the counterweight, of course, is that the U.S. is going to react negatively. The EU is going to react negatively. And the Palestinians, who knows how they're going to react? Are they going to demand citizenship? Is there going to be a violent uprising? We don't know, right? So it's, it's a very unknown playing field going forward. And this is why everything that's happened after the 1st of July is basically this, this unknown territory of where are we heading? What we do know for sure is that the two-state solution is, if not uh, legally dead, so to speak, it's basically off the table now. There's no, there's no one who sees sort of an optimism of that happening soon. Things have to be really reversed for that to be an option. So how have the Palestinians reacted throughout all of this? Um, or at least what has been your perception, since sometimes it can be a little bit hard to say in terms of leadership, etc. Yeah, so they've basically been very, very negative to Trump and to Netanyahu. Understandable. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of people around the world are really struggling to realize, you know, what is an alternative going forward? Like, how do we play uh, this? What is a, a good uh, strategy to, to react to this? Uh, one of the central things they've done is to say, you know, okay, so the Oslo Accords are dead. Uh, the security agreements with uh, Israel uh, are over. Uh, we're going to have to start completely anew. We're not going to cooperate with Israel anymore. But this is more easy said than done because the two societies are extremely intertwined. There is very close cooperation, at least on, on security issues. Uh, Israel controls all the borders. Uh, the tax system is, is set up in such a way that Israel collects taxes from the Palestinians and then pays it back to the Palestinians uh, or to the Palestinian Authority. So if all contacts are cut, basically the Palestinian Authority are not getting any tax money. Uh, they're not getting any borders. Uh, security cooperation is, is not just important for Israel to stop terror. It, it's also, you know, uh, part of, of keeping opposition from, from uh, fighting the Palestinian leadership. Um, 
and there is uh, a nascent leadership struggle on the Palestinian side. So one thing is the Hamas-Fatah divide, but another thing is Mahmoud Abbas is not going to live forever. Uh, and he's very old, and he's part of this old guard who, you know, he was he was there with Arafat all along. Um, and most of the people around Abu Mazen are, or Mahmoud Abbas are from that generation. So there's this huge uh, generational gap on, on the Palestinian side, and, and uh, there are no clear answers, basically, for them. Wrapping up, is there anything you want to add? Is there anything that you see happening in the near future, or maybe you don't want to speculate too much? I mean, it's it's very difficult to say because there are so many things at play now. One thing is is the U.S. election, which is unpredictable. Another is uh, Israeli politics. Will there be another election uh, around the corner? Um, a third is is Palestinian politics. Um, you know, uh, will will Hamas and Fatah finally manage to to reconcile? Uh, how will the this this transition fr- from uh, President Abbas to to the next leader um, go? And a fourth is 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 the region. The region is in real real turmoil, um, and and the Palestinians are are you know they're dependent on uh, finding some form of allies uh, that can support them and. You know, the neighborhood now is not really a good one for finding such allies. Thanks for picking Peace in a Pod. You can tune in next week to hear Scott Gates and Christian Davenport discuss Black Lives Matter. We need to think through, I think in the States, but also globally, we need to think through what kind of world will be like to live in and what role, if any, will the police play in that particular process. And I think that is essential. This podcast is a production by the Peace Research Institute Oslo. Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger. Music by Martin Rendemul. Thanks to Jürgen Jensehaugen for kicking us off in this first episode. <laughs>